Amen. Thank you, worship team. All right, our kids are leaving. Uh, would you join me this morning in Matthew chapter 24? That is a new section for us as we've been going through the book of Matthew. Matthew 24, uh, we'll be kicking off uh, two chapters of the Bible that are called the Olivet Discourse because the majority after we get past verse 3 is Jesus teaching uh, just across the Kidron Valley, looking back over at Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> so this is a very classic passage of Scripture. So a couple of things I'm going to go ahead and probably say more than I should, all right? Um, I've done that often. Uh, I'm just kind of transparent in that way when I get up here for some reason. Uh, here's the first thing. Um, I have a lot to cover today and a lot to say because it is a new section and because it's been four weeks since we've been in the book of Matthew. Um, and I mention that because uh, I've had one of these head colds, right? A lot of you have had the same thing, and right now everybody's probably, oh, has he got COVID? No, I don't. I went and got tested this week. I did a home test, and I got one of those, so I'm good. Unfortunately, it, it settled right into a cough in the last couple of days, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some of these in the medical field. Something happens physiologically when your body goes from this position to this position at night, and all of a sudden, it just, the coughing just roars, and I have not been able to get it stopped the last two nights. I hate that, and all my coughing just affects my throat, and I'm already starting with a weak voice. I feel fine, uh, but I have a weak voice, and so we'll go as long as the Lord allows. He is sovereign over all of that, that's for sure. Uh, the second thing that's probably a little too transparent is I have been dreading this, these two chapters for quite a while, and this week I found out why. I was telling Brandon... Uh, my normal reading for, the, for a week of other folks that I borrow their books, normally it will be about 35, maybe 40 pages this week in preparation. Same books, no extra books. Literally, I, it was either 99 or 100 pages of all weeks. Here I'm kind of medhead all week, kind of sick-headed, more to do, and I've just felt behind the whole time. And this is a big piece of passage of scripture. It's like one of those big lollipops and somehow you got the whole thing in your mouth and now you don't know what to do with it. That's what we're getting ready to get into. Okay. So it's tricky. It's very heavy, very tricky, very technical. And we'll even have a note later that's about how there are differing opinions on this passage. So what we're going to do this morning, in a moment, I'm going to read verses one through 14. That's our text. We'll see in a minute. I might if I'm energetic and spunky, I might read the next 20. Just read to 34 because I want to set the stage a little bit and give you some overview, all right? So before I read verses 1 through 14, that's our text. Here's our quick review. You guys with me? You ready? Here we go. It's the Passion Week. It's Passover. But this week we call this Passover the Passion Week. We know the Lord did his triumphal entry on Sunday. He cleanses the temple of the money changers on Monday. Presumably, this is the third day, what we've been reading for chapters now. And Jesus has been teaching, and it appears to be large crowds, some followers, some seekers. But mingled in among them has been his enemies, his rivals, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so this has actually been a very long day of teaching and confrontation. Again, by way of review, Jesus has given multiple parables. And the point of the parables was against the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
for their leadership and the state, the spiritual state of Israel being in disrepair. The Lord's point was against them in these parables. And it was kind of his last public teaching was brought to a crescendo in chapter 23 when Jesus gave seven woes, seven woes against the Pharisees and scribes. He pronounces judgment, anguish, sorrow, suffering is coming to the Pharisees and scribes. But then he lets it spill over actually to the whole nation. Why is this sorrow and anguish and suffering and judgment coming? For the Pharisees, he gave several reasons. We're reviewing. Their teaching led people to hell. They lacked spiritual discernment, but didn't let that stop them from teaching and acting as if they had authority. They majored on the lesser things in God's word. And they minored on the major things. So they majored on the minor, minored on the major. Another big problem, their religion, the way they taught it, was all about the externals, putting hardly any emphasis on the internal part of a person where God places the emphasis. And then probably the biggest reason for woe against them was they were very good at spotting sin in other people, even looking back at their own forefathers and noting how that, yes, our forefathers persecuted and even killed the prophets. Had we, they thought, lived back then, we would not have done that. They see that sin in them, not realizing the same sin is already in them, and they will perform worse than they ever did. And so here's where we're at. The Lord finishes by giving a lament over the city of Jerusalem that represents the nation, saying, Jerusalem, if you knew how often I wanted to gather you and protect you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And so without putting it on the screen, look at verse Chapter 23, look at verse 38. Jesus says to the, to the nation of Israel and in Jerusalem, he says, See, your house is left desolate to you. It's left to you desolate. Your house is Jerusalem, I'm leaving. Israel, I'm leaving you. The temple itself is going to be left desolate of his presence. And so he leaves. And he says, you'll not see me again in this capacity until you look and you say that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Guess what? To this day, the, the majority of Jews in the world are not ready to look at Jesus of Nazareth and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That day will come, but it hasn't come yet. And so Jesus leaves the temple. In essence, what where we finished four weeks ago was this. Jeff, why? And someone even shared with this how, and I was the same way, this answered a lot of questions. Of all the nations in the world, why have the, the, the nation of Israel experienced so much anguish and suffering really over the last 2,000 years, even 2,700, more than any other people? Why has that happened? Here's why. They received more truth than anyone else. They rejected that truth. You say, well, Jeff, a lot of people reject the truth of God. True. But they actually persecuted the, the, the prophets and servants of God that came and delivered that message. But they didn't stop there. They martyred, murdered them. They killed the prophets. And we know that they're just two days away, two to three days away, from actually killing the Son of God himself in the most horrible fashion they can think of. And that is why we've seen what we've seen for the last 2,700 years in the nation of Israel. So that's our backdrop. Again, verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. So here we go. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. So you're picturing it. When his disciples 
came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They know what he's just said. Again, how do you take your house? Is that the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem? Yes, yes. It also appears to be saying this temple is going to be left to you desolate. So he leaves the temple. He's going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Look how impressive. But he answered them, you see all these. Talking about the temple, the buildings. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That is a massive statement Jesus just said. Very disturbing statement to his hearers. That, I think, is said just as he's coming out of the temple. They probably haven't even started down the Kidron Valley, three-quarter of a mile away where they're going to end up in verse 3. On another hill, you can pull up pictures on the Internet of just, say, picture view of, of Jerusalem from Mount Olives. Pull it up, and you'll see the view, again, in modern times of what Jesus and his disciples were looking at. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Matthew says the disciples. Mark says, more specifically, it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? If you're paying attention, you should already know what these things is pointing to. He said something leaving the temple. They go down the Kidron Valley. They're up on the Mount of Olives. They're looking back at Jerusalem, and now they have a question. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And now here goes the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation, so did you catch it? There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. And king, what's the sign? When's this going to happen? These things. Tell us about the, the signs for the time of your coming and the end of time. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Catch it. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then Jesus says to his disciples, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And, he just keeps going, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, not just lawlessness in the land, but lawlessness as far as God's law, man's laws, God's law. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one, this is important, verse 13 and 14, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That is just the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to very quickly, faster than I normally would read, 20 verses. I'll try to hopefully have no commentary. I want you to get a feel because verse 34 is so important to this text. 
So we heard, just heard our text this morning. Now let's keep going. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That is the opposite of what people would do in that time period. Go to the mountains. Translation, don't go to the city. When you see this happening, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by all these, these things, and you see this happening in the city, don't run to the city. Get out of there. Go to the wilderness. Verse 17. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great... Again, we're going kind of a flow here. This is very confusing to me. I'll go ahead and tell you. I've not studied this section in detail, but this is confusing to me because having just said what he says there, which I think I know what he's talking about there, he then says, verse 21... For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God will shorten them. Then if anyone, here's this, Lord, tell us about the sign of your coming back. And, and I'm sorry, the sign of your coming. And tell us about the end of time. What are the indications? Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning, now this is clear as day right here. We know what he's talking about, verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That'll have meaning. Now we're almost done reading. Let's go 29 to 34. Here we go. Now this is a big section. This is an important part of what's kind of confusing me to why what some other people, how they interpret. Well, all that we've read so far, this makes me struggle with some things I've read. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, one last section that we're going to read. This is all just about one-third of this discourse. Watch verse 32. Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Here's a lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So the olive tree, I'm sorry, the fig tree, its branches get real tender and starts putting out, well, you know it's summertime. Summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, Jesus says, when you see all these things, you know that he, speaking of himself, is near at the very gates when you see all these things. Truly, so here's the difficult, probably the most difficult verse in this whole thing. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so there's the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. Would you notice, Lord willing, three things this morning? You ready? You guys with it today? Is it, uh, is it a little warm in here to you? Not warm? It's warm up here. Yes? Raise your hand if you think it's warm in here. It must be a barley thing. Okay. There's a few others of us. All right. Moving on. Here we go. We're ready. Number one, would you notice, back in verses one and two, Jesus made, is a simple. First two points are real simple. Jesus makes an astonishing prediction. Jesus makes an absolutely astonishing prediction. Look at verse one again. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Did you get the picture? Here he has just said he's leaving the temple and the nation of Israel desolate. So he, as God, is leaving the temple, and he starts to walk out. Now, the text does not say this, but I think, this is me reading between the lines, so this is not official. I think there's something in literally how he walks out, his whole gate, the determination, the finality of how he leaves. They put two and two together with what he's just said, and this is disturbing to them. And so I think, whether it be one or a few of them, they start getting this idea, like, but look how awesome the temple is. Look how magnificent and how important it's been. Look at how glorious and just impressive. And guess what? They're absolutely right. The most well-known and most often read and thorough historian of that day is a man named Josephus, who we're very indebted to what he's written because he tells us what life was like in Palestine in the Roman era in the time of Christ. He saw this temple. According to Josephus, now you got to let this sink in, he says that some of its stone... Now, we're not talking about the, the Wailing Wall. The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall that's there in Jerusalem. That's just one little section of a retainer wall. That's not the temple, okay? The temple and its outbuildings, Josephus says that some of its stones, they were all made of pure marble, uncut, and some were 40 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. Let that sink in. Marble, one stone... 40, that's from here to the door, 12 feet by 12 feet, that's massive. That's about a 200,000-pound stone. We still don't know to this day, kind of like the pyramids, how in the world did they do this back then? So what, what is, he starts pointing this out, and it's overlaid with plated gold. And so these disciples start pointing out, but Lord, I think they're like, what are you saying? Look how impressive, how important. But Jesus makes an astonishing prediction. So write this note. Jesus says that yet he knows about how important the temple has been. Because I want you to understand this. God doesn't need the temple. The temple was a gift of God to the nation of Israel. The reason, what, what Jesus is saying is God is going to actually let the temple be destroyed because Israel as a nation is about to choose it, the temple, they're going to choose their rituals and their traditions over the very Son of God. And God's not going to have that. His death on the cross is going to pay for all sin. They don't need to offer animal sacrifices to cover sin anymore. And so God is going to allow the, the temple to be destroyed. And of course, that does happen. So again, I want you to look with your eyes, verse 2, just before we go to the second point. Jesus answered to them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
Now, I've thought about that, and here's one thing I'm wondering. I haven't read the details yet. I'm sure I'll get into it more. But when the Roman army laid siege around the city of Jerusalem, it took a while to starve out these people. It was horrific inside. And I know that once they breached the walls and started taking control and destroying the city, I'm, I'm wondering what makes a person want to like, not just like destroy these Jewish temple. They've done this. We're tired of them. They revolted in, in, in 66 AD. And now we dropped the hammer in 70 AD, if I'm thinking like the Romans. But what would make them really go in and take apart every stone? Did they really have to do all of the stones so that literally this was fulfilled? This is like almost an impossible prophecy, but it happened just like Jesus said. Second thing I want you to notice quickly in verse number three. The disciples ask what I'm going to say is a complex question. The disciples in verse three ask a con we know it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It's more complex than they realize, and there's a reason. So look again. It has three parts, but I want you to truly grasp all the three parts because this kicks off the Olivet Discourse. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, so here it is. Here's the question. You've got to digest it. Tell us, here's three parts, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will these things, when, what will be the sign? When will these things, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Y'all help me out. What is these things? They want to know when will these things be? What do they want to know? When is what going to be? What's the answer? When is the destruction of the temple going to happen? Are you like saying literally not one stone of the temple and its buildings will be left upon another like this is literally going to happen? When is this going to happen? That's part one. And then there's the second thing. That has, we look at it. Now, here's, here's what confused me when I first read this. I looked and I saw three very distinct things because of my theology, right? There's the end of the age, the coming of Christ, the destruction of the temple. I know when this happened. I don't yet know when this happens. What I want to propose to you is the next note I'm going to have you write. When the apostles are asking this question of Jesus, they're in essence like the Old Testament prophets, Remember the Old Testament prophets, they're getting things from the Lord, and they see these things that are going to happen, these events about this Messiah Christ anointed one that's going to come and save and do all these wonderful things. And they see all this, but to them from their perspective, it all looks like one thing, one event. And that's the mindset that the disciples are asking here on the Mount of Olives. Write this thought down. Like the Old Testament prophets who only pictured a single coming of Messiah, the disciples here do not realize that the fulfillment and the answering of their three questions would actually cover a period of thousands of years. Their question is far more complex than they realize, though Jesus is going to answer it in its complexity more than they realize. In other words, you guys don't know what you just ask. You have a mindset. On Wednesday nights, months ago, we were practicing because we had learned several things about how to study the Bible properly. And so I try to employ these in my own reading and studying. So before I open anybody else's book, I go through the text over and over and over, and I will write down questions. So I'm reading this. I've read it before, but it never occurred to me. It just dawns on me one day. I'm reading verse 3. The disciples ask him privately, tell us when will these things be? Okay, I know what that is. When will the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? I'm asking myself, wait a minute. 
Why are they asking him about his coming? They don't even know about his coming. Thankfully, one of the commentaries that I read really helped me out. The key is the word behind what you see the word coming. You want to pay attention right here. This is key. MacArthur writes the following. He says, coming, the word you see in verse, verse 3, coming translates, and I'm not sure that I'm saying this correctly, parousia. So the word coming translates parousia. What is that? He says parousia is, has a basic meaning of presence, presence, a person's presence, and it has secondarily carries the idea of arrival. That's key. You read coming. Tell us about the time of your coming. I know what I think when I read that. That's not what they were thinking because it has a couple of ideas this word, parousia, could mean. It can mean and predominantly means presence. Tell us about the sign of your presence. It can also mean arrival. MacArthur continues. He says, the disciples' question might therefore be paraphrased. Quote, what will be the sign? Pay attention. What will be the sign of your manifesting yourself in your full, permanent presence as Messiah and King? Remember who the four disciples are that are asking this question because this struck, struck me in, in studying this week. Andrew wasn't on the Mount of Transfiguration, but Peter, James, and John are. I think what they're asking him is, Lord, when is all this going to happen with the temple and when are you going to show everybody else what you showed us up on the mountain, your real presence? At, when are you going to let them in on the secret? They've seen you do a lot of things. They didn't see what we saw. When are you going to, like, set up your kingdom? That's what they're really asking. Not knowing. Now, Jesus is going to pick up on the other meaning of the word parousia. MacArthur continues. They did not use parousia in the specific and more technical sense that Jesus used it later in this chapter, and as it is often used elsewhere in the New Testament in referring to his second coming. Finishing his quote, he says, They were not thinking of Jesus' returning because they had no idea of his leaving. That's what they're asking. When are you going to like reveal your true presence to everyone? Now that leads us up to verse 4 to 14. And this, Lord willing, will be the body and the main part of our text today. Would you notice number one? So we've seen Jesus makes an astonishing prediction. They ask a very complex, more complex than they realize question, series of questions. And then number three, Jesus describes the beginning of the end. Jesus describes the beginning. That's what we're in verses 4 to 14. Just the beginning of the end. Write that quickly because I want you to get, I alluded to this earlier, but this is extremely important. I want all of us to get it. This, what I'm about to say is why I've been so nervous about this text. Write this thought. Godly people differ on how to interpret the Olivet Discourse. I'll say it again. Godly people differ on how to interpret the Olivet Discourse. Help me out. What kind of people differ? Godly people. You know what that means? People that love God. They're born again. They don't just like read their Bible and study it some. I mean scholars who love the Lord, who've given their life to studying this book, differ totally on how to interpret these two chapters. Thankfully, this little guy in Anderson, South Carolina, has got it all figured out. In 2022, I'm not so foolish as to tell you that. I really am not. 
there are many views. I want to share you four predominant. They're not to be written down. I don't have that, but I'm going to give you four. Just put them in your mind. Four ways. We read just the first 34 verses of, that's about a third of the whole thing. Good people, godly people. And one thing that tells me is, Jeff, you need to keep your mind open and be teachable when it comes to this thing of prophecy. Everybody in here, I'm telling you, don't just assume, well, that's good for you. I got it right. Okay. Well, you write your book, and hopefully it'll be a bestseller, and it'll be accurate. Good, godly people differ on this text. Here's what some see. Here's, here's one. No particular order. Some people, when this is mainly the conservatives, this is about the group I'm about to say, they read basically the whole thing after verse 2 is about this end-time tribulation that's coming. This tribulation is going to come. Jesus will come at the end of that. We call it the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. This tribulation, this difficult time is coming for Jerusalem. It's going to affect the whole world. The whole thing is about that. Okay, I guess Jesus just ignores their other question about the temple. Others say, no, it isn't about that. The whole thing is about, the whole thing is about the destruction of the temple. And it was all fulfilled. Chapters 24 and 25 were fulfilled, in essence, even symbolically, there in 70 A.D., so some, it's just about the tribulation. Others, it's about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. A third view says, no, 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 no. Jesus actually answers both questions. If we put the last two together and the first one about when will these things be, Jesus answers both, and he does it in a very orderly fashion. He answers the first one in verses 1 through 35. That's why I read that. Here's a, here's a, a common view. Verses 1 through 35 answers about when the destruction of Jerusalem will come. And then after that, the end of chapter 24, moving into 25, that answers about the end times and Jesus' second coming. Okay, that sounds great. What's the problem there? There's a reason I had you guys read this with me. Here's one of the problems. There's several, but look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. It's not on screen. Look at it with your eyes. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the, the, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Uh, look back again, 29. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. How could that have all happened? We know that didn't happen in 70 AD. Here's their answer to that. That was all symbolic language that stood for the major upheaval that was getting ready to happen politically, socially, and particularly religiously as far as the Jewish nation in particular was concerned. And that's that view. So they have ways of looking at it and saying, yes, verses 1 through 35, all that has to do with the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem in 70 AD. After that is the second coming of Christ. So here's a fourth view I want to give you. Some people say, oh, Jesus answers all three questions, but he kind of does it in a way that they're intertwined, interwoven. It's almost like cords that are all bound up together. And so some of this, maybe this verse or these two or three verses here address that question, and these right here beside them address that, and you just have to untangle it all, and we can learn by history and other books of the Bible, and we can then place each one in its proper section. And so you can see how this is very difficult to look at. And you ought to go home this week and just start reading 24 and 25 over and over, and you'll see how it's that big lollipop that just gets bigger instead of smaller in your mouth. So what is the right view? 
Go one more time. I want you to look at verse 34 because this is the tricky, one of the trickiest parts. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I know we're getting technical. I'll not get so technical after. Uh, it'll be less technical here in a moment. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation is he talking about? Okay. If you believe all these verses before have to do with the destruction of the temple, then you would read verse 34 and say, Jesus saying that generation of Jews in 30 AD, they will be alive. They will not all die out. Some of them will be alive when this actually takes place. That's your clue. And if that's the interpretation, guess what? It happened just like they said, because 40 years later, a generation, 40 years later, 70 AD happened and the Romans destroyed the temple. Now, if you have a different view, well, here's what you would read. Verse 34 says, truly, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What things? There's a group that would look at verse 29 and say, when the sun is darkened and the moon no longer gives its light and the stars fall, if you're of that generation of people that sees these things happening, literally, then know that that generation will see the coming of Christ and the end of time as we know it. That generation. So that kind of puts two groups there. So you may be thinking, all right, Jeff, where are you at? I lean toward one. I don't want to really say fully yet because I'm just starting to study this. I realize by the time I get through these two chapters, hopefully I'll have a lot firmer views. I'll have a lot more knowledge and light on it, Lord willing. I'm leaning certain ways right now. But here's my opinion, having read the whole of it a few times, the first 14 verses, probably 40 times. Here's my view right now. You ready? I believe that the Olivet Discourse is kind of like prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. Not all of them, but some, follow me, some Old Testament prophecies, the prophet spoke and there would be a near fulfillment, near to his life, fulfillment of the prophecy, but yet there would also be a distant fulfillment of that same prophecy, and the distant fulfillment would be even fuller than the initial one. So that happens. Not all of them, but sometimes a prophet speaks something. It happens here in his life or shortly after, but it happens in a greater way in the life of Christ, a fuller. That's kind of what I think I'm seeing some of here in my initial studies. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? I know some of this passage has been fulfilled. Verse 2, we know when that happened, that was 70 AD. Some has been fulfilled. And yet others of this passage seems to be fitting what Revelation tells us. I mean, it's very similar. Sign up, almost the same thing. And here's what we know. We know Revelation was written after this. Revelation was written well after the temple was destroyed. And so some of it seems to be that. Put those two thoughts together, and here's kind of where, where I'm at. The generation of Jews in Jesus' day saw a devastating version in 70 AD, horrific version of many of these predictions. But later on, there will be an even more severe version of many of these same prophecies. Now, that's kind of where I'm at right now, not that that's important. But here's what I can confidently say as we continue in today's message. I can confidently say this, and this will set the stage for the rest of our time. The whole tone of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is this. He will return, and there will be a delay did you catch it? The whole tone, I will return, 
But before I return, there's going to be a delay. doesn't tell how long it is. And because there will be a delay, he ends up giving them and us three warnings and four commands. Three warnings, four commands in verses 4 through 14 that we're focusing on this morning. Three warnings, four commands. Two of the commands are explicit, and two of the commands are implicit. They're implied. They're not clear, but I think there are four commands based on three warnings. Now let's hit those three warnings. You ready? Here we go. Verses 4 through 14, warning number one. Jesus warns of false prophets. So you got it? Hey, I'm coming back. There's going to be a delay. Here's what you need to know. I'm warning you about false prophets. But guys, by writing that note, I'm actually cheating. I didn't have room to write everything that I needed. So here's what I really mean when I say false prophets. Look back at verse 4 and 5, and I'm also going to jump down to verse 11. Hang with me. We're doing kind of a Bible study technique today. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, so tell us when and what are the signs. Here's how Jesus starts. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Skip down to verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, I put both together and used the word prophets, but here's really what the Lord is saying. He is predicting there's going to be many imposters who are going to pretend and claim to be the Jewish Messiah. And along with that, there's also going to be false teachers who attach themselves to Christianity. Now, what I just said, you may say, oh, it sounds all the same. No, it is very different. There are false teachers who don't claim to be the Christ. But there's going to be, Jesus says, and by the way, this is what we have seen. He says there's going to be not a few, but many who will claim to be the Christ. And then many will be false prophets. He's not just saying, hey, watch out, there's going to be a lot of idolatrous paganism, false religions out there. No, he's saying false prophets, false teachers who attach themselves to Christianity. And there's even going to be some who claim to be the Christ. Some even go so far as to claim to be Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. So has that happened? Has that occurred? Josephus names many people who ended up claiming before 70 AD, they claim they're the Christ. It has been happening ever since. I thought about just my little life, just my little life right here in America. Do you know that there's people in my lifetime that have claimed to be the Christ, whether it be some nut job back in the 1970s serial killer out in California or another nut job down in Texas in the 1990s holding up people in a compound. That's just my little life in my little American version of that. But there's been many who have claimed to be the Christ. Guess what? There are many, ladies and gentlemen, listen, many more are going to come who are going to claim to be the Christ, ultimately climaxing in one that is called the beast in the book of Revelation, who is going to, who is going to claim that he is the Christ, but really he is the anti-Christ. So here's what the Lord is saying. Look back at verse 5, verse 4. See, to hear this as to you. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Then he gives all this list of things that are going to happen. And I think one of the things that I learned this week that I was reminded of is two things. The more difficult life gets, the more we want someone to help us and to save us. And then when catastrophes happen, false teachers, false prophets 
capitalize on catastrophe, and that's how they often gain their following. You let a catastrophe happen in our world or in America, and all of a sudden church attendance goes up for a little while, and false prophets and false teachers capitalize on those situations. So here's the warning. Beware, false prophets and imposters are going to come, but then we hear Jesus' command is in verse 4. Look at it again. See that no one leads you astray. So grace view. False teachers, false prophets are coming. See that no one leads you astray. When you hear that, you need to take that very seriously. Like you. And you. And you. And you. You need to take that seriously. Do not be led astray. Because if we're not careful, we'll assume I'm kind of impervious to be deceived by false teachers. I'm just... I'm not gullible. It's not going to happen. I'll see right through it. What makes you think that you will be impervious to it, unable to be deceived? Can we all agree? Some of you say, oh, I work with two or three of them at my workplace. Anderson County is, has not a few hundred, has thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have been deceived by false teaching. Anderson County has thousands of people today who regularly follow false teachers and a false teaching. What makes you think you are impervious to it? I'm immune. What I'm saying is we need to heed the Lord's warning. See that you are not led astray. You. Don't be led astray. Now, I'm going to give you the simplest note in the world, and we hit it all the time, but we need to write it down. So what's our plan? Our primary protection against false teaching is to always align what we learn with, I'm going to be specific, the written Word of God as our most reliable source of truth. Don't say, okay, I don't want to be led, led astray by false teachers. I don't want to fall prey to false teaching. So I'm going to, Jeff, I'm going to always make sure that what I learn and what I think aligns up with what you teach. No, that is not the answer. What you need to do is make sure that what I teach lines up with the written Word of God. It is our most reliable source of truth. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Not now, when you get a chance, and study that chapter. What Peter says, I know that Jesus is the Christ because I saw him transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's one reason. But greater than that, more important than that, his life, death, and resurrection align with the written Word of God. And the written Word of God is a more sure Revelation. This is the most sure. So don't be led astray. Make sure that your learning aligns with the Word of God. Warning number two. Quickly, warning number two. This is in verses six through eight. Jesus warns of wars, famines, and I'm just using the word disasters. I didn't have room to put earthquakes and another word I want you to get because Luke and Mark, in their version of the Olivet. They, I know that Jesus said this because they included it. Mark just didn't add it, and that's fine. They all don't write everything that Jesus says. Watch. Mark and Luke include the word pestilence, disease, sickness, epidemics, pandemics. Now look at verse 6. Tell us about the sign of, of when, when are these things going to be, and tell us about the signs of your, your coming they think your presence, but Jesus answers his coming and the end of time as we know it. Jesus says in verse 6, 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. All right. Quick drink of water. What I'm about to say, you'll say, oh, yeah, I know people like that. And some of you will be like, I am one of those. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Do y'all know that many people see major catastrophes as a sign of the end of time? A catastrophe. Catastrophes. That's a sign of the end of time. Is it? What I want to propose to you is if you were to read, I don't have time for, for us to read it 40 times like I have this week. I challenge you to go home, read this section over and over, and really get the sense of what Christ is saying. I'm proposing to you this morning that what Jesus is actually saying is that wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes by themselves are not an indication of the end of time. Say it again. Wars and famines and pestilences and earthquakes by themselves just by themselves, they are not an indication of the end of time. Here's why. Let me, let me show you this. I'm on, I have four things. I just said them. Hang with me. How many of these four things will be happening at some place on our planet today? Today. Wars. Famine. People don't have enough to eat. Like, really, they're starving. Wars. Famines. Pestilence. And earthquakes. How many of those four will happen today? Four out of four. All right, let's go back 20 years ago. Let's go back to 2002. Out of the four, how many would happen on this same date 20 years ago? How many out of the four? All four. Okay, go back 100 years ago. How many of the four would be happening somewhere on the planet 100 years ago? All four. Go back 1,000 years ago. All four. There were people experiencing earthquakes. Guys, as they're writing, as Jesus is saying this, they're only a mere six days away from two earthquakes right where they're at. They're two months away from a third earthquake in Acts chapter 4. And I know these are very specialized to them, but earthquakes happen. They've been happening. Pestilence has been happening all around the world. People have the New Testament. The Old Testament talks about famine. The New Testament talks about famine. That's one of the reasons that the love offering was being raised for the Jews back in, in, in Jerusalem. People were starving. We've got to help get them food. There's a food shortage, and they're being persecuted and getting cut off. We, you over in Greece, need to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. This has been happening all along. So here, let's complete your note. Here's the note. Jesus says that wars, famines, pestilence, earthquake by themselves do not indicate the end of time. You say, then what's the point? They've been consistent through the church age. Well, here's the point. Those things are like birth pains. Here it is. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? They're like birth pains. Well, I've never had a baby, but some of you ladies in here have. Here's what we know about birth pains. They increase in frequency. And, you know, here it is. Whoa. What was that? What in the world? Don't think another thing about it. A few minutes later, pow. Whoa. A few minutes later, whoa. Yeah, well, that's not what's happening right as the baby's being born. It's, that's what's happening. They increase in frequency and intensity. So here's what the Lord's saying. All through the time, until the end of time, there's going to be pestilence and famine and wars and earthquakes. 
And they're going to increase as time goes. They're going to increase in frequency, and they're going to increase in intensity. It'll be, boy, I just finished reading Revelation at the end of December like a lot of you did. Did you read that? Can you imagine what life is going to be like? I'm going to borrow from him again. MacArthur writes about some of those judgments. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, I don't have time here. But you remember the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments? MacArthur writes the following. Get this. This this stood out to me. The seal judgments, the the seven-sealed book, the scroll. Jesus opens the first seal. Something happens. He opens the second seal. He writes, the seal judgments unfold over a period of perhaps years. The trumpet judgments unfold over a much shorter period of time, perhaps weeks. And the bowl judgments unfold over the period of perhaps a few days or even hours. You see it? It's like this is happening and it goes on, and it's happening all around the world. But then as the end draws near, it is boom, boom, and it's boom, boom, boom. So much so that the world that is alive at that point is going to think, no one's going to live if this keeps happening like this. And it is true. No one would live if God did not stop the judgments. R.T. France writes the following. Now, we need to hear this. We need to hear this. This is important for our mindset. He says, each generation has its own share of political and natural disasters. Each generation has them. And each is tempted to think that its own experiences are somehow worse and of more ultimate significance than the sufferings of other generations. But it is not yet the end. That's what the Lord is saying. All this is going to happen, but it's the beginning of the birth pains. The sign is when these things, start, these things start happening with more intensity, more frequency. That's when you know it's, oh, it's birth pains. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Please understand, I am so sick of this thing. I am ready for it to clear out of here. I'm so sick of having to worry about it. I'm tired of having to get up and, and, and tell you the details. Hey, I've got a little head cold and I've got a cough. And, but I did go get a test. I got a tell. I'm so sick of every. Somebody coughs around us our first thing. I bet they got COVID. I'm like, well. And we do need to be cautious. And please understand, I'm not in any way making any light. Some of us have lost loved ones to this, and more is going to happen. But do you understand that in America, if what I looked up the other day is accurate, we have had less than 900,000 people die of this so far? Well, it's the worst ever. The end of time is here. Hang on. Do you know that in the middle 1300s, there was this thing called the bubonic plague, the Black Death in Europe? And the estimation is 25 million people died in Europe in the middle 1300s in a four-year period. 25 million. We haven't caught them yet. 15 million Africans have died of AIDS. I know they're getting it under control. 15 million. This stuff's been happening. Yes, what's going on is worldwide, and it's horrible, and I'm tired of it like you are. But we, France is so right. We all look at our own experiences. This is it. This is the time. Now, lest you think, man, this guy does not sound like the typical preacher that I've heard in this area. It sounds like he's up there telling us the end is not near. Oh, I'm telling you the end is near and the Lord could come back at any time. But I'm also trying to tell you that we're fooling ourselves if we read into every little thing as if it's the sign that the end is absolutely here. The Lord could come at any point. But my point is when these things happen, if an earthquake hits Anderson today, you need to take a worldwide view and the broad view and the long view and don't just constantly get yourself worked up. One last thought before we hit the third warning. 
Notice Jesus' command. Where is it? Verse 6. Look at verse 6. Watch it. We've got all these crazy things happening. Wars, famines, pestilence, pandemics, earthquakes. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Grace for you. See that you are not troubled, like cast down in despair, ready to just quit. The fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit. I've got to watch my voice getting too animated here. The evidence of the Holy Spirit controlling us is peace. It's not that we're like immune or make light of these things. We hate these. We feel the pain of it, but we're not going to panic. Take the long view and always be resting in the sovereignty of God, whatever's happening. Though the stars may fall, God is in control. And this is all part of the plan. It's going to be okay. My name's written in the book of life. I know whose I am. The I am tells me who I am. That's when it matters. Crazy things are coming. You set yourself up for major disappointment and despair if you honestly go through life thinking the normal mode of things should be world peace and health and wealth and prosperity for me and pretty much everybody in the world. That is not real world thinking. We're going to have wars and famines and pestilence and earthquakes and other disasters. Warning number three. I'm coming back. There's a delay. In the meantime, you need to know false teachers are coming. And you need to know that wars and these other disasters are coming. And number, two, number three, in verses 9 through 12, Jesus warns, and I'm putting two thoughts together because they kind of go together. Jesus warns of persecution and apostasy. He warns of persecution and he warns of apostasy. A falling away. One of the reasons for a falling away is often persecution. Look, if you would, at verse 9. You want to know what's going to be the sign of the time? You want to know the beginning of the birth pains, the beginning of the end? Let me tell you what's coming. Look at verse 9. Jesus says to his apostles, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of Christians, many Christians, live their whole life in relative peace. Relative peace. Me. You. We've lived our whole life. I'm talking relative. Hey, I don't know anybody personally right now that I could, they would recognize my face that's in prison for their faith. But that's not been the norm. We get su such an American view. We get such an American view. We get such a 21st century view of things. We think this is what's normal. This is not normal. I want to emphasize this point for just a few moments. Persecution came to the church early. The church occurs in Acts chapter 2. You don't get out of the chapter, but they're being mocked and ridiculed. By the end of chapter 3, they're getting, chapter 3 going into chapter 4, its leaders are being arrested, and off it goes. Persecution has been the tone. Hear me. Persecution, as far as the church, occurred early, often, and continuously at different points around the world. You say, well, I don't see it and feel it here. Persecution is happening right now as I speak. Our brothers and sisters, some of them will lose their lives today for the faith. Catch what I'm about to say. Jesus, in verse 9, I think he's warning his disciples, these four that are asking him, he's warning them that you are actually going to be the fulfillment of what I told the Pharisees just a few minutes ago up in the temple. 
Remember I told them, they think, well, if we lived in the days of the prophets, we would not have killed the prophets. Jesus says, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and teachers of the word of God, and you will kill them and crucify them and flog them in your synagogues, and you will persecute them from city to city. And now he tells them, guys, you're the fulfillment of that. Write this note. Most of the apostles were actually martyred before 70 A.D., I'm not going to say all of them. We know that John ends up living. He's the only one who's not martyred, though they tried to kill him. And I'm not going to say that all of the apostles were martyred, but I know that James was killed in Acts chapter 12. Tradition, we don't have their deaths in the Bible, but reliable church tradition tells us Paul was put to death in the 60s. Peter was put to death in the 60s before the temple and several others like them. Most of the apostles are put to death before, martyred before 70 A.D., now get it, they're the first fruits. They're among the first who will lose their life and be persecuted. This is key, not for what they did. They're persecuted not for what they did. They're persecuted and killed for what they believe and for having the audacity to speak it. And you say, well, that's doing something. Okay, but hang on, we're talking about ideas and beliefs. I'm not stealing anything. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not killing anyone. I'm not molesting or, 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 or raping or doing anything like that. No, we're not doing those things. We're not getting drunk and killing people. What's their crime? Believing something, staying faithful to Jesus, and sharing their faith. And they're killed one by one by one. Millions. That's what's happened. Now here, I'm going to tie verse 6 with this thought. Grace for you. Don't be alarmed. I'm using Jesus' words. Don't be alarmed when that comes to America. We've been living in a nice little bubble. It's coming. Don't be alarmed. It's okay. I'm allergic to pain just like you are. But don't be alarmed. Look at verse 10. Got to hit this fast. So persecution's coming. They'll put you to death. They're going to hate you, hate you. And then many will fall away. And but I want you to hear these words, three things. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. They'll fall away, they'll quit, they'll leave, they'll leave Christ, they'll leave his people. They're not with him anymore. This has been happening. This is going to happen. Verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. What kind of person is that describing? That's describing an what kind of person? An unsaved person. It's not that they were saved and then lost their salvation, took a break, didn't finish well. These were unsaved people that fell away. This is the apostasy. Now, I'm attaching apostasy in this point here with persecution. Why? MacArthur writes it this way. I thought that thing had broke loose. All right. MacArthur writes it this way. In verses 9, 11, and 12, are you with me? He writes, Jesus mentions three reasons for their defection. One. The price will be too high, persecution. Then he says, that why, why do they defect? The deception of false teachers will be too convincing. Number three, sin will be too attractive. Verse 12, look at verse 12. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Back to verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's why we have to take these warnings seriously. Jeff, why do we have to take the, the warning about not being deceived seriously? Because many will be deceived. Many will be. You don't be. You don't be. Hit that again. What are the three reasons they defect? 
because the price is too high, because the deception of false teachers is too convincing, and because sin is too attractive. Write this quote from MacArthur. He writes, such people, as verse 10, forsake God's earthly family. Why? Because they were never born into his heavenly family. They forsake his earthly family because they were never born into his heavenly family. Jeff, what do you mean earthly family, heavenly family? Okay, we've got a family meeting today. If I'll shut up and pray in a few moments, we'll have a family meeting, right? The members of Graceview. And I hope all you members will stay. And those of you that are not yet members, if you have a testimony of faith in Jesus, I hope you'll take our new members class and stick in here with us. But I'm getting ready to tell you the truth. We can have a family meeting and everybody that's here physically as part of our earthly family of Graceview does not mean that just because you're a member and on our role that you are actually part of the heavenly family of God. You can fool us, and many people do. What's the indication? How can you tell? Hold your spot here. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Flip over 1 John chapter 2. Hit it quickly. This is what's happening in, in Matthew 24 verse 10. You'll see it in 1 John chapter 2. This is important. 1 John 2, look at verse 19. They, there's two groups. There's they and us. They and us. John, the last surviving apostle, is an old man in the 90s. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They went out. So there's they and us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Watch. There's this they who used to be with us. But now they're not with us because they never were really, truly part of us. They were only pretending for a little while. Anybody come to mind? Can you think of anybody? I can. Hadn't seen them in a long, long time. And I'm not talking about they've gone to that good church or that good church or that good church. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying they don't have anything to do with the cause of Christ. And they have all kind of good reasons or they're not even sure why. Persecution runs a lot of people off from the cause of Christ. False teaching Runs a lot of people off for the cause of Christ. And sin runs people off for the cause of Christ. And when they do, that just shows they were never really of us. There's some folks that used to be here a couple of years ago. They're not here anymore. Some of you, I'll just put it plainly, not being mean. Some of you, at this point next year, you will not be in another church and you will not be in this church. You will go out from us because you are not truly one of us. I'm just telling you like it is. You say, well, that's not me. Praise the Lord. I'll see you next year. Don't be shocked when unbelievers stop coming. Don't be shocked when unbelievers stop coming. Then lastly, as we go back to Matthew, let's finish. Verse 13 and 14. I think there's two implied commands. So we've had three warnings. False teachers are coming. Do not be led astray. Wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes are coming. Don't be alarmed. Hey, Persecution's coming, and many are going to quit. Okay, don't be alarmed. So what are the two implied things in verse 13? They're very obvious. Look at it. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hey, guys, watch. A truly saved person and a false professor. What's the difference in a way that you can tell? Don't go by externals. 
well, boy, look, they got the haircut and they got the right Bible and they know some good things about the Bible and they've been here for, what, a good, good year or two. They've got to be a good Christian. No, I'm going to tell you the, the way to tell true Christians from false professors. Here it is. A life of faithfulness. A life of devoted faithfulness to Jesus. A life of love for God and a love for his people. You let them live that life and you can say, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty confident that's a born-again believer. Anybody can fly in and fly out for a year or two or a few weeks and want all of our time. I've seen that over and over. Woo, yeah, I can do all these wonderful things. Three months later, where are they? They're gone. We kind of learn from that through the years. I don't know why I said that, sorry. Every pastor that's hearing that and saying, yep, you're right. Anyway, sorry. Write this thought. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I want everyone to understand, and Christians know this is true. Safety, you can write that in that note. Safety and sin hold an attraction for Christians. But we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, and the Holy Spirit inside of us empowers and equips us and enables us to stay faithful in our life for Christ. Yes, safety. What about persecution and death? I want safety. I, I would choose that. But I have the confidence to believe that if the day comes for a persecution, the Holy Spirit in me is going to allow me to stay faithful. I am not going to disavow my faith in Christ. I'm not going to do it. You hold me to that. I will not do it. Sin definitely holds an attraction for Christians. It does me too. But the Holy Spirit does not let us just go off into that. He enables and empowers us to remain faithful in our devotion for Christ. And so Jesus is commanding his people here at Grace View this morning. Endure. Hear me. Endure to the end. When false teachers come, you endure with Christ. When war comes and pestilence and famine. When the stars fall. In verse 29. If that happens... You say, Jeff, I have a view of the Bible. and I, Okay, that's great. I'm with you. I'm with you. But if by chance some things fall out a little different than we think, and it gets really, really hard, endure, Grace View. You endure with Christ. That's what he's calling us to. You stay faithful no matter what. But they hate me. They're going to kill me. Look at all this that's happening. You stay faithful to Christ because those who endure to the end will be saved. You may be saved from death. You may be saved through death. You may be saved through death. Because when I die, then I'm fully saved. And then all that's over. So verse 13, let me get this straight, Jeff. What that means is if I endure like you just charged us up, man, you kind of got me inspired there for a second. Watch your voice. Yeah, okay. I'm with you. If I do that, then I'm earning my salvation. No, that's not what verse 13 means. And I, I'm only giving this because somebody may think improperly. I know we know better, hopefully. Write it down. Endurance for Christ is not a means of earning our salvation. It's a means of identifying those who really have been saved. Endurance. Hey, I'm going to get you on another secret. True Christians stumble. We all stumble, but it's temporary. True Christians will never abandon Christ. We will never abandon Christ. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe and I'm convinced of it. And it isn't because we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's because, as Peter said, the power of God keeps us. The power of God keeps us. 
I thought about it. I got I to gotta finish. I thought about some of our older saints. We got some saints in their 70s and 80s, and they've been walking with the Lord for a long, long time. And I thought about when they got saved early in their life, and some of them right now are thinking, hey, that's me. There are some of them who got saved 40, 50, 60 years ago, started going to church, started serving God, and have been serving God ever since. And they could tell you. They won't remember them all, but here's the fact, ladies and gentlemen. Those older saints have seen many people come, and they've seen a lot of them go. And they know they're no longer in church anywhere. They know they're no longer serving the Lord, not serving Him in any way, not worshiping Him, doing nothing for the cause of Christ. They came in and they left. What happened to them? They've seen many of them. Here's what I'm asking all of you this morning. When you're 85 years old, when you're 99, like Miss Maggie, when you're 99, are you still going to be faithful and devoted and in love with God and loving His people, or are you going to find a good reason to have quit and stopped? Don't, don't read in more into what I'm about to say than what I'm about to say. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But a lot of people are using this pandemic, and what you're going to find is when it's all over, they're going to quit on the Lord. They will have quit on Christ. They're going to have quit on the family of God. This is just the reason. Other people, it's going off into sin. Do not let that be you. Have a reason for why you do everything you do. And have a plan to connect with God's people. Ultimately, you stay faithful. Fast, verse 14. Oh, this is confusing. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I guess those people who thought that all leading up to verse 34 had to happen before A.D. 70, I guess they're wrong. Verse 14 blows that out of the water, right? Look at it again. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Well, actually, they have an answer to that. And I'm going to throw it out to you. You ready? I'm hitting two things quickly. Watch. Colossians. Let me go this way. It's actually this way. Colossians chapter 1. Watch this. It'll be on the screen. Let's have Colossians 1. Look at verse 5. Paul is writing to the Colossian believers. and He's saying, I thank God because I hear that you have love and you have faith and you have hope. I thank God. When I think of you, I thank God for you. Verse 5. Watch it. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth. You've heard the word of the truth, the gospel. This is written in AD 62. Watch verse 6. The gospel, which has come to you, Colossians, as indeed in the whole world. The gospel has come to you as indeed it's come to the whole world. And it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So there are some... Their honest belief is what Jesus meant in verse 14 is that the gospel, what's going to the whole world, it's the whole world that was known in their world, the Roman world. And guess what? By 62 AD, the gospel had made its way to Rome. And so it had gone from the Jews, from Jerusalem to Judea, to the Samaritans, to the uttermost part of the world. All the Gentiles, Gentiles are being brought, not that every single person, but that the whole world around the Mediterranean Sea, the world that was really known to them, that's what Jesus had in mind. And Paul alluded to it that's a good theory it's not mine but that's what you say Jeff well, what do you think it is let's finish in Revelation 14 finish Revelation 14 what do you think is the answer the gospel verse 14 again this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come 
Guys, I'm just simple. When I read the Bible, I take it literally unless it is clear that I'm not to read it literally. I take that literally. So here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think he's alluding to a command, a commission for the whole church to be busy in global evangelism. That's our job. That's what we're called to. And the Lord is saying before the end comes, the whole world will hear the gospel. That's what I think. You say, so Jeff, I'm putting two two together in my mind. Does that mean that Jesus will not come back until the whole world hears the gospel and we better get really busy? I don't know. We need to be about that business. I don't think it is riding only on the church to get it done because that's why I had you turn to chapter 14 of Revelation. If we do not get it done, then we know that ultimately the whole world will hear the gospel whether it be the 144,000 witnesses, Jewish witnesses that are mentioned right before this text, but look at verse 6 of Revelation 14. Look at it. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I'm still developing my my theology on this, but all I know is this. We are to be busy about the great commission of taking the gospel to every part of the world, every part of the world. So one of the new missionary projects we're going to propose here in a moment has to do with getting the gospel to the unreached people groups. We must be doing that. And it may be God's plan that that happens, but if we don't, I know that Jesus' promise in Matthew 24, verse 14 happens. Would you stand with me this morning? Just before we pray, I know you've been sitting a while. Just before we pray, here's our recap. You ready? False teachers are coming. Don't be led astray. Disaster is coming. Difficulty is coming. Persecution may increase. It's going to come. A lot of people are going to quit. Some of you are standing beside somebody that you think they're a Christian because they've given that testimony for the last two or three years. It won't be long and they won't be pretending to be a Christian anymore. They're not truly saved. I'm not trying to get you to like, who is it and all that. I'm just telling you the facts. Many people are going to quit. Don't you quit. You endure. Don't be led astray. Don't be cast down and alarmed at everything that's happening. You endure no matter what. And while you're enduring, you be proclaiming the gospel. So right as I get ready to pray, think. Think. Christian. You say, I'm a Christian. I'm going to endure. All right. How are you specifically spreading the gospel at home And helping it to be spread around the world. How are you part of that? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for this truth of this chapter. And for what you've let us know is going to happen. Lord, I just thank you that you helped my voice hold up. I really thought that was not going to happen. That's kind of a miracle based on the last day or two. You're really good. You're really good. Thank you for these folks' attention. Even in the midst of a... An unusual disruption earlier. We thank you, Lord, that you just spoke to us. Lord, I thank you. that I felt their energy and their connectedness rising rather than waning through the, through the message. I thank you for that. That is you that did that. Lord, let us be aware 
and wise to false teachers. May we align our learning with your written word. Father, I pray that we would not be cast down and troubled when famine and pestilence and earthquakes and wars come. Father, I pray that when persecution, when we're hated for, for the cause of Christ, that we will endure, that we will not be led astray, that we'll not quit. And the Lord, that all of us who have experienced the salvation of the gospel, Lord, I pray that we will be sharing that and seeing to it, doing our part to get that message around the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take about a five-minute break? If you're one of our members, we'd love to see you in about.